Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing. Available at all your finest retailers. Please buy a copy. Please, please. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas, as is our guest later on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Okay, and on today's episode, well, Happy New Year's. It's New Year's Day as this episode comes out, and I'm going to be hiding from everybody, including all those Oregonians who are in my hometown for a parade. <laughs> yeah, man, well, that's what happens once a year, huh? Yeah, uh, but of course, we're going to head to the pub today. We're going to give you a little bit of news, including some talk about some of the beers that we've been having. We're going to head over to the brewery to talk about, well, oddly enough, some brewing stuff. Before we head into the lounge, where we're going to talk to Stephen J. Poor, uh, the guy who's behind not only the SJ Poor YouTube channel, but also behind the SJ Poor Challenge. We're going to talk a little bit about, well, an unusual homebrew competition. Yeah, it really is, man. It's really cool. Uh, they do a lot of work for that. But before we do any of that stuff, sit back, relax, and take a listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 45,000 individuals who share a common passion, beer. Since 1978, the HA has promoted and advanced the most delicious hobby in the world, providing brewing resources, supporting homebrewer-friendly legislation, offering exclusive member deals at breweries and homebrew shops, and hosting one-of-a-kind events like HomebrewCon and the National Homebrew Competition. Join your beer-loving peers at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. We are back, and like always, we're going to start off with a couple quick announcements. And the first one is, if you missed it, uh, because it did come out on Christmas Day, and I don't know, maybe you were doing something else on Christmas Day and didn't listen to a podcast. I was I drinking multiple Belgian beers. Well, and, and a hot tub, too, which is an image I don't need. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> but no, episode 78 of The Brew Files came out, and it was actually the part two of our discussion about Anchor's Our Special Ale, a.k.a. Anchor Christmas. And in the second episode, both Denny and I sat down and we tasted the beer. Yay. It's always good when we get a chance to taste it. Oh, beer. yeah. And we also broke down exactly how we would do sort of an Anchor-inspired Christmas ale, something done in the Anchor fashion, not a clone, but just our thoughts about how we would approach tackling a beer in that same vein. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, it was a it was a really really great beer. It's been twenty years since I've had one, and I was pleasantly surprised by what they've done with it in that amount of time. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely changed over the time. So if the last time you had it, it felt like it was sort of a a big spicy porterish thing. Really give this a th- this new version a shot. I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. That's right. Okay, and then don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is yet to be decided. Uh, our last charity was Chat with Champs. Uh, you guys did a great job. I'm about to uh, total up all the money you sent in for that and send it off to them. And uh, on our next episode, we will be announcing what the next charity is. And we've got the, a pretty cool and unusual one in mind. So stick around for that. Yeah. So uh, don't forget, we always like to do these charitable things. And we always appreciate when you guys give us money to be able to support charities. And, you know, we'll be able to keep the mission going. That's right, man. We've been uh, sending off some nice donations to all these charities. And it's all due to you guys. So please keep it up and help us help them. Now, in the spirit of the holidays, I think it's time for us to just get down to business and go have a beer. <laughs> All right. No feedback. No corrections. We are, like, grooving this time around. Stick around. We're going to head over to the pub, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the pub life. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth-generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. are sitting here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever you happen to be, and we're having a couple beers, and we have both gone non-domestic this time. Yep, we have, and I, well, you know me, I, I'm always a sucker for, for Belgian beers, particularly around the holidays, and I'm always a particular sucker for this one, which is still probably my favorite beer in the universe, and that's a Veclamba from Brasserie Dupont. I have a couple of nice aged bottles that sit in the beer fridge, and I popped one open because why not? <laughs> yeah, and so what'd you think, man? Had it held up well? 
Duh. Hell yeah. <laughs> it had, huh? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and remember, Avec Le Bon Vu is, well, it started life as DuPont's sort of New Year's holiday beer. And, you know, it's really kind of an amped up version of the the regular DuPont, a little bit paler, and also with a lot more hop character to it, as well as more uh, booze. And, yeah, it's just like everything I like about the Saison DuPont just sort of amplified a little bit more. So, yeah, the fact that it it's, you know, still there in the bottle, it holds up like a charm for years. I think the bottle I had last night was uh, five years old. Right. And, you know, still very, very impressive. So definitely a beer that I always look for, and I always try to make sure I have at least a bottle or two of it somewhere around the house. Because yeah, you- it really is my favorite. You know, and uh, at Thanksgiving time, I always uh, seek that one out because that is a beer that goes with turkey like it was made for it. Absolutely. So I am uh, drinking a beer called Atomium. It's a uh, Belgian beer from the Van Steenberg Brewery. Uh, The Atomium, just so you know, is a uh, building outside of Brussels that looks like an atom, a bunch of spheres connected with uh, with rods, a uh, very, very unusual thing. It's a very I, dramatic building. Yeah, it really is. And I first had this beer, oh, geez, maybe 15 years ago or so. And then when I was in uh, Belgium last year, we were on the train and went right past the Atomium. And I thought, you know what? That's a sign that I need to revisit this beer. So... Uh, I went out, and in the 15 or so different Belgian beers I was buying for the holiday season, I picked up an Atomium, and it was a delicious beer. They call it a Grand Cru, and as you know, a Grand Cru is not any particular style. It's the best beer that a brewery makes. Uh, It's an 8% beer. It has really kind of like background notes of orange and peach, and there's like some honey and toffee notes to it, uh, enough bitterness so that it doesn't come across as too sweet. Really, really a great, great beer, and I'm lucky that we have a great beer store here in Eugene where I can get one and know that it's always going to be in good shape. So if you're in a similar situation, keep your eyes peeled for Atomium. It's a great Belgian Grand Cru, and I think you might like it. Sounds good to me. I'm always on the search for a Grand Cru. They yeah. don't seem to make it. They don't seem to make them as much as they used to, and they don't seem to make them over here as much as they used to. Yeah, that's true. Have you ever had an Atomium? I haven't. Well, there you go, man. You have a quest now. I always have a quest. <laughs> I live my life in a quest. Or a question. Well, one should always live your life in a question. Okay, and, uh, enough enough bad puns. Let's move on, shall we? Yes, and let's go from bad puns to actually, you know, something that is. An interesting trend for uh, potential craft breweries, particularly the larger ones. Uh, remember earlier in the year, we had noted that Anchor and the brewery staff there had voted to unionize, uh, working with, uh, I think it was the uh, ILWU, which is the uh, International Longshore and Warehouse Union. And so the brewery employees had voted to unionize. And of course, the once that happens, there was a negotiation that had happened with Sapporo about a contract. And they agreed to a three-year contract with the ILWU. And basically what it really does is it sets the brewery staff up for pay raises over the next couple of years and uh, benefits. And, you know, it also take, it gives back some of the benefits that disappeared when Sapporo took over the company. Or actually, sorry, not when Sapporo uh, took over the company, when uh, Fritz sold the company originally to uh, the, the Sky Vodka folks. And... So it'll be interesting to see what happens. But basically, you know, they're going to get a uh, 
an average pay rate uh, increase of 8%. Uh, they'll also get uh, 401k payments, including uh, performance-targeted payments. And then they'll also have uh, benefits expanded also to the part-time workers and uh, better health care that's going to happen there as well. So that is uh, pretty good. Now, of course, I mean, what's funny is that for a brewery that's located in the heart of San Francisco, even when you're looking at these increased pay wages, you know, which are you know starting to step up to like 15 to $18 uh, for some of the brewery staff, uh, that's still not enough to live in San Francisco. So a good portion of their brewery staff is living well outside the city. Yeah, you know, it, it really is one of those things where they really had to do it. There's just no choice. Uh, if you live in San Francisco, you got to make enough money to live in San Francisco. Yeah, I think they're talking about like the top the top union pay rate, at least for the current set of workers, would go up from 1850 to $21 an hour, which, I mean, is, again, that's, you know, it's not a bad wage for a good portion of the country, but uh, <laughs> certainly not in San Francisco. I, can, I couldn't afford to live in San Francisco, and I make a lot more than that. Yeah, really, man. Uh, you know, all I can say is good on them. I, I, I know it's a, a drag when you have to pay the money. I, I know that uh, people say, oh, you know, the company shouldn't be forced to uh, pay them that much. But, you know, the company is located in San Francisco and you got to pay. If you want workers, you got to pay them. Yep. Well, and the interesting part to me, of course, is what this will mean, you know, for other craft breweries you know, as they're going, as, as they start to mature even more. Right. I'm not talking about like your little local mom and pop that's making you know, 10 barrel batches. I'm talking like the larger breweries, whether or not we're going to see more of that. And particularly, or if there's the alternate path, like what we just saw happen with New Belgium, where remember New Belgium had gone to an ESOP, right, an employee ownership program. Right. And that ownership program just voted to sell. And now each of the each of the employees there who's part of that ESOP is receiving a substantial amount of money from the sale of the brewery, which, you know, is interesting and arguably, you know, not a bad thing either. So there are a couple of different paths I can see going forward, but it is interesting to see Anchor as really the sort of the first unionized craft brewery. Now, keep in mind, breweries like Anheuser-Busch have been unionized for decades. Right. So, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if this does actually expand out more into the craft beer world, given that, you know, craft beer margins in a number of ways can be um, slim. <laughs> Questionable? Yeah. Slim to yeah. none. Yeah. So, again, good to see uh, workers getting paid. Be interesting to see the impact down the line. And, of course, Anchor is still making really good beer, so make sure you go and get some Anchor beer. Yep, yep. Big shout-out to Anchor. You guys are doing the right thing, and that's a great thing because not everybody does. Now, also interesting that's coming up. So February is plenty of the younger month, right? Um, and that's the, the month when Russian River has, I don't know, they take over the town of Santa Rosa, and I guess now uh, Windsor, to for massive lines for people to get their much lauded, much heralded, much hyped triple IPA, Plenty the Younger, which is sort of the souped up version of Plenty the Elder. And the interesting part about that is if you've ever had bottled Plenty the Younger, you haven't. Or you've had somebody <laughs> who filled a bottle from, you know, a growler that they bought or a pint that they took into the bathroom. True story. There are people who actually will go to the pub, buy pints, and then package them to go trade them elsewhere. Uh, which is a terrible idea. That's just ridiculous. It, well, welcome to the beer trading world. So this year, Russian River, because they do have now the expanded brewing capacity at their new facility, they have announced that not only are they doing, I think it's a full two weeks of playing the younger release, 
But they are also doing limited sales of bottles of Plenty of the Younger only at the brewery and only for people who have participated in the whole lineup and buy your tickets and all that sort of good stuff. So there will be a limited number of Plenty of the Younger bottles out there, which I can only imagine what the street value of those things are going to be in the beer trading program. So um, I'm just always happy to see it. You guys know I will go down to the Stuff Sandwich uh, every year to go enjoy Plenty of the Younger there. Because Marlene does a hell of a program. If you want to join me, feel free. Uh, but yeah, Plenty of the Younger, it's a, a really great beer. I'm not sure any beer is worth the hype. I don't tend to line up for anything. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm the I, same way, man. I, I even, you know, won't go to the Great American Beer Fest again because I just, I, I can't take standing in line for a beer. Well, see, but that's the trick is that what you do at the Great American Beer Festival is you go to the places that don't have lines because well, they still probably have pretty good beer. And that's exactly what I did uh, when I was there. But, you know, I, there's just there's a limit. Yes, absolutely. But I thought it was interesting to see that they announced that because, again, this is such a um, a hyped beer. It's such a an event. Um, I'm wondering if there are some people out there who are doom and glooming it, right? Because why not? Um, but they, they're doom and glooming it over the sense of like, oh, well, this is, this is going to spell the end of the hype. Uh, to me, I don't think that's the case. Uh, but I do think it's a, I do think it's a really good beer, even though I don't tend to stand in line for any beer in the universe. <laughs> yeah, right, man. Uh, I, I, you know, no matter how good a beer is, it's not worth waiting in line hours for. Yeah, but at the same time, I would, uh, I would happily go and just go stand in line just to go to the Windsor Brewery just to see it. Yeah, well, I would happily go stand in line at Disneyland, but not beer. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Well, then we'll have to get you to go stand in line at the uh, New Glarus, because that is kind of the Disneyland of beer, at least in terms of stainless steel. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Maybe I'll make it there one day. All right. And then the last story that we're going to do here in the uh, pub today, it's one about, I'm, I'm trying to think the best way to put it, but if... Surprises. Well, it's I was going to say, yeah, if Play the Young is about a beer that has a lot of hype that lives up to the hype somewhat... Then let's talk about some hype that turns out doesn't live up anywhere close to the hype. So there is a brewery in Columbus, Indiana that uh, has suddenly hit the the beer news waves recently, uh, 450 North. They've been selling these sort of super hyped cans of, I don't know how best to describe them, but I guess, you know, milkshake-ish IPAs with a ton of fruit in them, um, like a massive amount of fruit in them. And they've been calling them uh, slushy XXLs or slushy XLs. And they've been putting them out there as if though they have um, 8% alcohol, right? And somebody, because of the fact that they were like, look, this beer basically pours like straight fruit juice, um, really started to question whether or not that was actually 8%. And turns out they had the equipment to measure it. And they measured the original gravities or they, uh, sorry, they measured the alcohol level. And it turns out that they were only coming at like 2.5, 2.6% alcohol. And of course, this blew up on the beer news because these guys were charging like $24 for a four pack of cans. You know, so a lot of money for what people started referring to as basically uh, fruit juice packs. And they, I mean, if you look at these things, they look like basically solid fruit puree. And the brewery finally responded to say, well, we're taking the ABV off the, off the cans for now. Uh, Because we did do some testing, and it turns out that we 
we're, we're right. It's you know, we we did our calculations wrong for these, and they're they're not IPAs. Sorry, they're uh, smoothie style Berliner Weisses, which is what um, they 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 claim to do the calculations incorrectly, and not really realizing that the eight percent base beer that they were taking, that they were then um, <laughs> they were diluting with the fruit puree was no longer going to be eight <laughs> percent. You know, you have to wonder if they've ever brewed before. Uh, well, I mean, that that has been something that they've been taken to task with uh, by a lot of people in the in the community because that does seem kind of like just you know basic brewing knowledge. If I add something that doesn't ferment, because by the way, they're not adding the fruit puree to ferment it; they're adding it and and essentially essentially doing whatever they can to stop the fermentation so that they can. <sighs> Yeah, you know, it just goes out as straight juice, and of course you're supposed to keep it cold and and not yeah. not do it. But I mean, again, these are four packs that they're selling at you know twenty plus dollars a pop, and oh, they're coming in. At, and I'm not a person who who sits there and screams about you know you're, you're shorting me my money if you're not giving me all the booze I want. But that's ridiculous for you know for this sort of thing. I mean, it's basically you're paying for you know very lightly diluted fruit, uh, organ fruit concentrate. Well, not only that, but it, we have previously discussed the folly of loading a bunch of fruit into a beer and then telling people to keep it cold. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> that just does not work out very well. Yeah. So, 450 North has responded basically to say that uh, it says here uh, we've been made aware of the alleged discrepancy in the ABV listed on a recent product, uh, and they're dedicated to getting the bottom of the issue. And then they responded later in that week after people uh, pretty rightfully uh, took them out. And they said, uh, yeah, in 2012, we set out as a family with a passion for craft beer when we opened the doors to our now small by comparison brewery and pizzeria. Uh, you know, they the, the claim that, you know, we've, our focus has shifted from simply making good quality beer to pushing the boundaries of what beer can be. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, you could take that a couple different ways. You could. And they said, after being made aware of possible inconsistencies in the ABV levels of our slushy line of beers, we sent samples to be tested by an independent lab. The findings were unexpected. The independent testing of multiple slushies has determined that our calculation process was critically flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they're, they're supposedly going to uh, send the, their beers in to you know, get the correct ABVs on everything so that they can you know, do that. And then, and then they'll start putting the AV, ABVs back on the labels. Which, by the way, unless they're shipping the beer across state lines and they're in a state that doesn't require ABV on the label, they're fine to do. Um, and I don't think Indiana does. But still, I I still struggle to understand how you could have your your calculation process that critically flawed. Well, yeah, and I don't know about other places, but around here, I think that pretty much every brewery sends their beers out to be tested. You know. Well, well, I would say, you know, a good number of small breweries don't, but yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true, depending on how small they are. But on the other hand, I know that Oregon Brew Lab here, and Dana, has a really good relationship with nearly all the breweries around here. So. Yep. So uh, with that story of bad guesses, I guess it's time to move on, huh? I think it's time for us to go talk about our own misadventures. <laughs> Yeah, really, man. Some more than others. We're going to take a quick break here so you can listen to some messages from our sponsors and head over to the brewery. So we'll see you there in a minute. 
Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Welcome to the brewery where the stainless steel is gleaming and the burners are burning. And uh, Drew has some ruminations on brewing. Well, yeah. So if you follow me on Facebook and not just the experimental homebrewing feed, uh, you'll see I post in addition to a lot of dog pictures, which, yes, I do. (laughs) I guess you do. Um, You'll also see that I tend to post a lot of, well, if you're not aware of who I am, they they would almost appear to be non sequiturs. And a lot of them tend to be about brewing. Um, and so while I was doing my last brew session, which was me brewing up a Belgian single, which is intended to go and uh, grow up yeast in order to be able to make a new Belgian strong golden because I'm just about out. And when I say just about out, I mean I think I'm down to my final pint in the keg. Um, and so I just posted some things during the brew day because why wouldn't you? And the two that cracked me up were... I got a brand new bag of malt uh, from Tony over there at Micro Homebrew, uh, Skagit Valley uh, Micro Homebrew Select. So it's a particular malt that he has them make for the homebrew store. And I decided to play with it. And of course, you know, a brand new bag of malt means I have to open the bag of malt. And if you've ever looked at a traditional bag of malt and notwithstanding modern changes in this technology, they have a very cool sort of triple stitched seam that seals the bags. And the trick about these things is that there's one magic thread. One of those three threads is a magic thread. And if you cut it just right and you pull on that thread, the whole seam comes undone in a single shot. And it's just the most satisfying feeling in the world where it just goes, you know, and the bag opens up and and life is good. You'll see this sort of seam on things like uh, bags of charcoal or uh, feed bags, you know, any sort of old fashioned sort of, we filled a we filled a sack and we sewed it shut type of uh, seam. Uh, digression. I mm-hmm. used to work in a feed packing plant and my job was to sew the bag shut. See, there you go. Uh, it, 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 I, 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 the things I've seen in the past are like 
usually like some sort of handheld device that you can just like run along the bag, right? Uh, this was a, a sewing machine on a stand, and as the bags came down, a conveyor belt standing up, you kind of pinch the top uh, shut, shoved them into the uh, into the machine, and it sewed them shut as it went down the conveyor belt, and the big trick was keeping your fingers out of it. There you go. Usually a good idea with machinery. Yeah. Um, but again, that's one of those really, really satisfying feelings, and you know, professional brewers get a lot of practice at opening these bags. As a homebrewer, I don't get nearly as much. And so getting that moment of success is always so wonderful because uh, easily 90% of the time I'm sitting there, I have to take out a, my pocket knife and slice each of the damn stitches individually in order to open up the bag. And I feel very frustrated at the end of all that. Um, so I posted about that on Facebook. Not thinking of anything about it, right? It's just, again, one of my non-secular comments. And Wow. People responded in droves to that comment. Uh, easily over a hundred different comments, mostly along from people going, "Oh, hey, here's here's a perfect video to watch. This is you know this is from the folks at RAR about how to do it, or here's you know one from Wireman that you know they've got instructions online about how to best open up their bags. And of course, each monster is a little different. Um, and, but by and large, it seems that the brewing community out there agrees. It is one of the most satisfying feelings in the world when you can just unzip one of the bags of malt exactly like it's supposed to be. You know, and ever since you posted that, I've been trying to remember when was the last time I had a bag of malt that wasn't in a paper bag that was glued shut. Uh, maybe, I mean, that's the way Mechagrade does all of theirs. Maybe I've just been uh, working with so much Mechagrade, I've forgotten what everybody else does. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, a lot of the Great Western bags are still sewed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, RAR's still sewed. Um, obviously, Skagit's sewed. I mean, a good number of these are, are sewed. But yeah, you're right. Mecca glues their bags shut, which is a, a new way. And I forget who it was. So, uh, Jeff uh, uh, Jeff's going to kill me because I can't remember which uh, monster he was talking about. But that they had a new uh, paper tab that also helped you with the, the whole process, which seems kind of like cheating. <laughs> I would say that anything that makes life easier is not cheating. Fine, be that way. But no, again, one of the most satisfying feelings in the world about brewing is when you can get that bag open in one straight shot. It's just such a clean feeling. It is It is pretty fun, I have to admit. And then the other one, also from that same brew session, was I posted, and this one actually did go out to the experimental brewing feed, was a picture of me doing a shake and not stirred starter. Now, remember, if we, if you haven't listened in the past or you haven't read the stuff that we've been uh, uh, writing recently... Yeah, the shake and not stirred is now how Denny and I both do our starters. And of course, we had a lot of comments on, you know, the photo that I was actually kind of surprised about. People like going, or well, you can just build a stir plate. Because my comment was basically it was a nice foamy starter in a gallon jar. And, you know, I said, remember when making a yeast starter, you know, shake it like it owes you money. And we had a lot of comments on there about, oh, well, you could just build a stir plate or do this, that, and the other. So just as a refresher, of course, remember the idea behind these vitality starters that we're doing is not yeast cell maximization, like the number of cells. It is yeast cell activation, the amount of viability that we have. Right. Uh, uh, which is arguably at our level far more important than pitching uh, rates. And so what you what we advocate doing is either taking a quart or a half gallon of wort, putting that into a one gallon jug that's nice and sanitized. Actually, if you're going to be using a half gallon, uh, then you need a two gallon jug because it has to be four times bigger than the amount of starter wort. I've been doing it at a half gallon, in a gallon. Um well, and, it's been working, and it's been working fine. So, um, but uh, take that uh, take that jug, fill it with the the appropriate amount of wort, 
and then shake the living bejesus out of it. And what you want to do is you want to see a massive head of foam form, right? You want to fill that jug as much as you can with foam. Yes, it's going to be painful to shake it for that long, but guess what? After you do that, you, you're done doing anything to the yeast. Right. And then you pitch the yeast into that, seal, uh, seal it up. Again, I just seal it up with a piece of foil on top, and then let it get to fermenting. And then when it's at high croissant, if you're doing it the way that Denny always does it, high croissant, into the into the beer it goes. Um, I've I've mixed approaches of either allowing it to fully ferment out and then crashing it and then pitching that, which misses out on some of the benefits supposedly, but it also pleases the the anxious part of my mind. Or <laughs> or you can pitch it. Or I've also done it where I pitched it at high croissant. Now the thing is, people are always talking about lag times. And the real race numbers that's out there, like people talking, oh, well, you know, I, I managed to get this beer pitched and it's fermenting within, you know, four hours. Or these people who are using the Quake strains saying, oh, yeah, I pitched three cells of Quake into the into the beer and it was fermenting in 30 minutes. Um, lag time is relatively unimportant. Yeah, it as just long as you have as as long as you have good sanitation practices. Yeah, homebrewers seem to be way, way too hung up on lag time. I mean, in practical terms, there's not going to be much difference between a four-hour lag time and a 48-hour lag time. Yeah, I mean, now, if you're getting to 48, that would start to worry me, but unless I'm doing a lager, but still at the same time. The, the, whole, the, the whole thing of, like, you know, it's got to be fermenting in four hours rather than, say, 12, that doesn't matter so much to me. No. It, it, it so, really doesn't, uh, you know, and uh, to just put your mind at ease, uh, Y-Yeast every Friday posts little tips on their Facebook page. And the one that came out uh, today, this being a Friday, was a starter method remarkably like the shake and not stirred. They didn't have you shake it in advance, but basically they had you pitching the yeast into uh, a quart of 1035 word and shaking it occasionally. Uh, we've discovered that if you do the big shake in advance, you get all the oxygen in there that you need, so there's really no need to do anything else. Drew is having a hard time getting over the fact of pitching the starter word. And I have to admit that for many, many years, I did too. And then I tried it, and it's like, you know what? I was wrong. You can do that. If it's a quart of starter wort going in there, and it hasn't been on a stir plate getting heavily oxidized, no problem. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I hope that he will have uh, the courage of his convictions and do that more often. Yeah, my convictions are weak. <laughs> Yeah, well, fortunately, your beer isn't. There you go. Now, also on other observations. So, I mean, one, that's what happens if you follow me on Facebook. Weird things happen in terms of discussions, and I enjoy them greatly. But the, uh, and also you can, you can participate in my, uh, my, my music quizzes as I'm listening to strange music and asking people, what is it I'm listening to just by giving you a piece of the lyrics? Yeah, um, man, you know, and I, about one out of every 10 of those I get. <laughs> well, I think my favorite was the anti-Christmas music one. Um. <laughs> yeah, and I was sitting here reading that, uh, listening to Mel Torme. Yeah, um, yes, I posted in the anti-Christmas music section because I was getting sick and tired of listening to Christmas music, uh, a good old-fashioned rock and roll country murder ballad. <laughs> well, if only it was a Christmas murder ballad. There are a few of those that exist. Now, speaking of Christmas... Of course, it being Christmas time, there's always the question of Christmas brewing gifts and what you get. And so this year for one of my gifts that I got for Christmas, I did get something that was brewing related. 
And then I probably had the debate in my head of how much do I explain what this is? Because of course, for people who aren't brewers, you know, they'll buy you things to, you know, on, on a Christmas list that you may have and, and they have no clue what you want it for. And then you start to get that debate of like, well, how much do I tell them before they start to get bored? And of course, by the time you've had that thought, they're already bored. <laughs> I'm bored already. Just listen to the explanation. There you go. Well, and in this particular case, what I ended up getting was I got a, what Peter Simons described as a lifetime supply of Durkee's caramel essence, um, or Durkee's caramel coloring. And what it is, when I first got Peter's books, you know, bronze brews, um, the, a good number of the recipes were calling for something called Parisian essence, which to those of us in North America is what? Yeah, and I was going to say Parisian essence. Is that like perfume? No. So I did uh, I did some research, and turns out it's not that hard to find out what it is, although it's hard to find a substitute for it. Parisian essence is essentially a, a caramel coloring that has no flavoring, right? So the problem is here in the U.S., if you, if you go and you look for caramels in the grocery store, caramel coloring type things, usually what they are is they're gravy agents. So they're like, you know, gravy browning. So they'll have onion and carrot flavors in them as well, which means you can't use them for beer. And so I did a ton of research and I found this stuff from Durkee. That's their caramel coloring. That appears to be a fairly close uh, analog to Parisian essence. And I wrote about it on Facebook and Peter reached out and said, oh, good, because the people who make Parisian essence just announced they're going to stop making it, which <laughs> makes that hard. And then the other one I thought was interesting was uh, Mike Karnowski uh, from Zebulon Artisan Ales. Uh, he uh, he said, oh, well, hey, let me know how that works for you because I can never get to stay in color. Right. So, uh, you know, he, he said that he tried it with a couple of beers and the color eventually would fade or drop out, et cetera, et cetera. And so now I want to see, has anybody else out there on the podcast used this stuff before? And if so, how did you use it and what sort of success did you see? Did you see color dropping out? Did you pick up anything else? At least tasting it raw, it doesn't have, I mean, it has no sugar, right? There's absolutely no sugar to it. But what it does have is just a little bit of a burnt bitter taste to it. So I imagine given the usual rates at which you use this in a beer, because it's not very much. I mean, again, I got a 32 ounce bottle and Peter basically said lifetime supply. Because it's not very much, I don't think any of those flavors are going to come across. Now, why use this? Because it's not just in Australian beers that this stuff was used. Uh, caramel coloring agents, you know, not invert syrups, but actual caramel coloring agents are used all over the scope of traditional Commonwealth and British brewing. So a lot of times, even some of the beers that you'd see coming out of, like, say, a British brewery, the difference between, like, the pale bitter and the dark stuff was just the addition of this caramel coloring agent. So it's kind of like Cinnamar for caramel. Exactly. Um, it's like a less intense Cinnamar. And without any of the any of the, the any of the associated rates of or any associated taste of Cinnamar, because right? to me even Cinnamar has a taste. Oh yeah, and I was I wasn't saying that it was like that uh, in terms of in terms of flavor or color or anything like that. Just that it has kind of the the same theory behind yep. it that that Cinnamar does. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it's very interesting to me. I'll, I can't wait to actually give it a shot and see how it works. Uh, because I am always fascinated by the idea of being able to play around and do different things with colors, you know, that people are, are seeing. There was one uh, person on that Facebook comment uh, page that made a comment that what they wanted to do was take one of their beers and use that and give give it 
give dosed pints of it to people to see if they felt like the darker colored beer was stronger. <laughs> and of course, uh, that will always probably be the case. Always. So it'll be interesting to see. I, um, I can't wait to try it because it is, again, it's one of those sets of ingredients that we don't think too much about here uh, in the U.S. because we have a tendency to be all malt or all get out. Um, and these are things much like even like the brewer's uh, invert syrups that we talked about before that are key components to the flavor profiles and color profiles that we get from other countries that we don't have access to or that we don't play with in the past. It's just like how uh, Belgian beer making here changed once we got our hands on candy syrups. Yeah, man, it, it sounds like a very interesting thing. I was aware that it existed, but I'd never seen it before. Uh, and you'll have to like maybe send me some beer you make with it. Absolutely, I can do that. <laughs> Even though, as we're about to establish, I'm very shipping adverse. Yeah, right. I, that's why I said that. You know, I, I figured I'd put the, a bug in your ear right now. Uh, Denny, how about you? Have you been brewing anything? No, I haven't. <laughs> my uh, my uh, glycol chiller has been down, so I haven't been able to maintain fermentation control. Uh, I have a batch of grain crushed and waiting to go here for my American brown ale. But I haven't brewed anything in weeks and weeks, and uh, I'm I'm jonesing to get out there and brew again. I got the uh, new chiller and fermenter set up yesterday, so I'm hoping maybe next week sometime I can get it brewed. I was gonna say I don't know about you, but like right now I don't need any glycol. Like, I'm actually I'm actually depending upon the glycol chiller to run the heater in the in the fermenter. You know that's and that's very true. And as I was setting it back up yesterday, I realized that uh, I could have been doing this all along, but. Anyway, for whatever reason, no, I haven't brewed for a while, and I really, really want to get back out there in the brewery as soon as I can. Well, there you go. No time like the present. That's right. No time for us to go, you know, lounge. That's right. We're going to head over to the lounge, and we're going to be talking to Stephen Poor about the SJ Poor Challenge, a, a unique and fun kind of homebrew competition. So please stick around. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of beer and brewing books that help millions of brewers improve their craft. Visit BrewersPublications.com to explore their catalog of trusted brewing resources. We have made our way over here to the lounge, and we are lounging around, and we have a guest with us today. We have Mr. Stephen J. Poor with us. How are you today, Stephen? I am fantastic. How are you guys doing? I'm good. Uh, Drew must be good, except that he had to work today, and I didn't. <laughs> so we are here today with Stephen to talk about a homebrew competition he runs called the SJ Poor Challenge. Uh, challenge always gets me going. So Stephen, why don't you tell us a little bit about what it is? All right, cool. So the uh, the SJ Poor Challenge is a um, beer competition, homebrew competition that is kind of all on its own. Uh, we do things a little bit differently than than most. Uh, competitions, whereas 
the participant, the brewer, is also the judge, uh, which keeps it very interesting. Um, and it makes it kind of a logistical nightmare at times, but uh, we have a good team across the nation. And when we go worldwide, we put together a real nice team across the world where we can make this thing happen. So how does how does that work, man? I mean, obviously, people don't judge their own beers. Exactly. So what we do is um, the, every year we come up with a new theme for the uh, for the competition, and we like to try and keep it along the lines of uh, experimental. Um, you know, just learning, you know, good learning experience, um, trying different things. Sometimes we'll, you know, just throw out a, uh, a recipe, um, to where they have to have it as, uh, you know, you need to have this base. And then it always typically ends up being an open competition. So as long as you have a few set ingredients, then it's open as to what style and what else you want to put into it which uh, every year has has been quite interesting. It's been a lot of fun. It really has been. So when you say the brewers judge it, how does that work, man? So what we do is, depending on how many uh, participants we have every year, I'll put together what we call hubs. And those hubs will be strategically placed uh, around the country. Um, and what we like to do is try and keep the participants per hub at anywhere between nine and twelve people, um, so then you know we usually break down the hubs by that amount of people. Um, and what they do is then once we set who all's in a particular hub, those folks will send their beers to the hub coordinator. That hub coordinator will then break those packages down, and he will send those beers back out to the participants where um, they will then get a scorecard and they'll go through and they'll judge the, the beers. Now, what we like to do is, since this was a YouTube-started um, uh, event, we encourage folks to do YouTube uh, reviews on the beers. Uh, and through the years, we've been able to change it up a little bit to give a little more freedom to the brewers. Back in the early days, everybody knew who everybody was. You know, through the right. you know through the challenge, so we kind of went away from that to be a little more anonymous. Um, and now we've come up with a way that we can still be anonymous, but allow the brewer to um, say more of what their beer is. Say they're going to enter in a. Um, I'll use an example of one of our finalists this year was an English style barley wine that featured coffee. Um, so he was able to, without giving away who he is, he, he's able to, you know, give a little bit about the beer, you know, in the in what the beer is. So what what styles are you featuring this year? Well, we're going to do this year coming up. Now we literally just crowned the uh, 2019 uh, champion, and that was Josh Hoover out of Sandy or out of Oceanside, California, and his beer was actually a Belgian Golden Strong, uh, which was really cool. And uh, the idea was we were going to get them 32 ounces of hops, and uh, Yakima Valley, man, they really hit it out of the park with us, and they turned 32 ounces into a pound and a half. So what they did was they actually gave the uh, the, the winner a $50 voucher, and uh, he went. He was able to go pretty pretty hold wild on getting hops from uh, from our 
from Yakima Valley, which was really cool. Cool, man. Uh, so what other prizes do you have? Uh, so the, we, we pay, we play for, you know, we play for a trophy. I have a uh, local company that makes up a giant hydrometer. And every year I have these That's very cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is neat. Um, it's a big hydrometer. It's a functional hydrometer. It's about like 18 or 20 inches tall. And it might be an inch or so around. I make a nice little rack for it. So that's the nice uh, first place, you know, prize. And then what we do, you know, of course, we want to do the certificates and, and uh, medals and stuff like that to recognize the folks as we move through the rounds because there's there's multiple rounds. This is typically takes a couple months to get through. Um, so you get to the end you know, where you crown actually the nation or the world's, you know, best homebrewer by the homebrewers that participate. So how do people find out about it and uh, and put in their entries? So what we do is we have a website. It's www.sk4challenge.org. And once we open up registration, which will be here after the first of the year, because we just finished up 2019, but anybody can go to that website at any time. Take a look at our sponsors. We have our mission statement there. We have uh, recipes, we have past winners, our guideline, um, everything that you need to know about the SG4 Challenge is at one neat spot, www.sg4challenge.org. And uh, have you set an entry deadline for this year, or is that still coming up once you get it all together? Yeah, we're still setting the, the, the solid times, but what we're looking at as a time frame would be... Um, so we're looking at March would be where we would do Hub 1, would be Round 1. Uh, so those beers would be back out to the brewers by uh, March 27th. Voting closes in early April. And then June, we would be doing the second round. Uh, the beers would be back to those folks by the 8th and finishing, close, or finishing off the voting by June 22nd. Then we run into round three, which would be in July, and the idea is to actually finish it up um, by 4th of July. So let me ask, in between each of those rounds, are the brewers recreating the same beer or possibly entering the same beer, or are they allowed to change the beer up as, as they move? That is a great question. So what we do is, years past, what some do is, like, I guess it depends on the style of beer that you're making. So if you got one that is going to age well, you're going to do a big enough of a beer at the beginning that you can just use that one beer to work your way through. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the brewers uh, this year in particular, they rebrewed. You know, now, you have to set up your timeline. You know what I mean? Since we'll put the, the timeline out there, and then you've got to schedule your brewing to fit that. Uh, they brewed between, you know, to have fresh beers for each round, which is well within our guidelines. All we ask is that you brew the same beer. Uh, well, there goes my nefarious plan to to change it up each time and confuse people. <laughs> yeah, you would do <laughs> yeah. that. So, and do you, do you use the BJCP style guidelines for judging, or do you uh, have your own criteria? We actually have our own criteria. Uh, we call it the SJPC. So <laughs> that's great, man. <laughs> and um, there, it's more along the lines of 
like a, if you were to look at it and go, okay, so these, these are really geared more towards, you know, a people, people's choice. Um, it's the way it's set up. But what we do is we use BJCP guidelines to help our people get through the beers. And that's, again, that's all part of the educational side of it. So, you know, we do like to use the BJCP, you know, to help you work on a style. So if you are uh, scoring a, um, you know, a red ale, you want to, you want to grade it to what the beer is. You know what I mean? So it's kind of a hybrid between the two. So it's like, how close are you to the style guidelines combined with like uh, hedonistic? How much do I like this beer? Yeah. So what we do is we like to we like to put more point heavy towards um, overall impression of the beer. So we do uh, appearance, aroma, flavor, mouthfeel, and then overall impression. And we usually put the overall impression and flavor. Those are our more heavy uh, scored points. But we'll have through the scoring uh, worksheet, we use, uh, we'll, we'll give like examples, you know, for what you're looking for in appearance and, you know, in aroma and stuff like that. Great. So let's, let's talk a little bit about you, man. Uh, how did you get into brewing? I drink beer. I love to drink <laughs> really? beer. Really? Really? Exactly. Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, quite a few years ago, uh, a good friend of mine got into home brewing, and I was like, hey, this is pretty cool. Um, and it really it grew from there. And then we got, I, I got on to, I did local stuff here with our local clubs, and you know, it started to grow, and it was like, hey, this is pretty neat. And I went online and started to see just how widespread it was out there, because like with most hobbies, you start off and think, you know, oh, you're the only ones doing it right here in this little area, you know. And then you start to look, and you're like, holy cow, there's people doing this in New Zealand and Australia, you know, and South America and all over the country. And, and we started to branch out more on the YouTube side, started doing, you know, videos, um, started teaching folks how to brew, you know, via videos and, um, learning from those videos, I've been very fortunate to be able to meet a bunch of wonderful people over the years um, from all over the world, actually, uh, from homebrewing. And it's just kind of taken off on its own. What, what's your favorite thing to brew, man? I'm one of those guys that I brew everything. Right now I've got four beers in the back, and they're all i got a Belgian pale a chocolate brown, and a, uh, I have an IPA going in the back as well. So my favorite beers really are, you know, a nice crisp Pilsner, you know, a simple beer. I'll go crazy with certain beers, you know, to where, you know, you start putting these crazy ingredients together, which is fun. I love using my uh, whiskey barrels. Um, but I also really dig just a simple like a pale ale or Pilsner, my God, I love a good cream ale. You know, so it's like simplicity and then over-the-top insanity is kind of the way I brew. That's not too dissimilar to me. I was going to say, it sounds a whole (laughs) lot like Drew. (laughs) You know, the simple stuff and then the kitchen sink stuff. Exactly, exactly. And it's fun. I mean, if you only got a couple minutes to put in a brew day, Throw an extract kit together. If you want to, you know, if you want to, uh, 
involve an entire day. Get your all green equipment out, you know, and you know, and just have at it. I'm, I'm again blessed to have basically an entire homebrew supply store in my basement, so <laughs> I can brew whenever I want however i want man you know we we both know that feeling people walk into my garage and tell me it looks like a, a homebrew supply warehouse exploded well and of course denny's been in my garage so he can explain that my garage is exactly the same yeah i was gonna say man, <laughs> I, I think it has something to do with how long you brew you know you accumulate stuff and and also to that point i think that your tastes as you as you brew more and more for longer and longer you you kind of get back to like the simple straightforward stuff, don't you? Yeah, that's that. Yes, very much so. I I, I find myself nowadays going back um, and actually getting more simplistic. Like going back in the day, where a, a beer that I brewed, you know, ten years ago, it was hey, that was a pretty good recipe, and then grabbing it and bringing it out. And, you know, it, it was simple. Just looking at it, you go, my God, there was nothing to this, you know. And then you're just getting back to the simplicity of, of you know, a good to style beer, really. If only someone would write a book called Simple Home Brewing. <laughs> <laughs> and then have it backed up with an experimental home brewing. Right? Yeah. I don't know. There might be some guys that have done that. I don't uh, know. Who, who knows, man. <laughs> Yeah, well, and I just wanted to point out, like, what you were saying about you go back and you look at your old recipes and see that there was nothing to them. Like, I find that a lot of times I'll go back to my older recipes and I have actually the opposite reaction, which is, you know, oh, wait, there's way too much in this. And so the next thing you know, I'm taking a machete to the recipe <laughs> and re-simplifying it. <laughs> yeah. We have uh, one of the guys that was in, actually the guy that won this year. Um, Josh Hoover had brewed up a, uh, he called it the Nefarious Degenerate. It was an extract, <laughs> uh, like a darker IPA that he entered in, oh, maybe five years ago. And uh, it was funny because we were talking about that very thing. He goes, I look at that recipe and think, oh my God, why did I put all of that in there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, man, I I can relate. It's the same thing with my, my rye IPA recipe, which I've brewed hundreds of times and thousands of other people brewed over and over. You know, I put like carapils and wheat malt in it because when I uh, ex when I first developed that recipe, you know, that was the big thing. Well, if you want to get good foam on your beer, you need like carapils and wheat. Since then, I've learned that that is not necessarily true at all. And if I was like going to do that recipe again today, I'd leave them out. But on the other hand, man, they're in there. That's what I like. So it hasn't changed. And that is a very good beer. I've brewed that one many times myself. That's a very good recipe. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, and you know what? I, I was talking to Charlie Papazian once, uh, you know, because his Toad Spit Stout is like a famous recipe from uh, the new Complete Joy of Home Brewing. And he's got like a tablespoon of gypsum or something, in, in, like in a stout, which is just kind of like bizarre. So I asked him about that once, and he said, you know, if I was writing that recipe again today, I wouldn't put that in there. But so many people have brewed it with it and liked it that I'm never going to take it out. That's interesting. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, I'm talking to home brewers pretty much every day. We call ourselves, I'm sure you guys have heard of, the brew tubers. Yeah. Right, you know, because we do a lot of videos, um, you know, and all that jazz. You go to Facebook, you know, see our, our brew tubers page there. 
Uh, we also have a uh, website uh, as well. And um, so we're talking all the time, and, and the, the more we brew, the more technical we get, the more we're looking at, you know, water profile, chemistry, you know, and all this. And it's like, yeah, you can go crazy, or you can just pour it out of your tap on this kitchen stove and make just as good a beer as well. Yeah, man. It, you know, it, it's all in your taste buds. So is is there one recipe you find yourself coming back to and brewing over and over again? I do. There's a, there's a couple of them that I just I don't mess with anymore. I have a, a red ale that everybody gets a kick out of the name. It's called Two Dogs Licking, um, and it's an <laughs> Irish red. I usually make that one, you know, right around right before St. Paddy's Day. Um, I'll make that a couple times through the year. And um, I have a Falconer Flight IPA that um, was actually inspired by your rye IPA. Oh, cool. I did a Falconer Flight and added some, you know, some rye to it to get that extra spiciness to it. Right. And uh, that's a fun beer. <laughs> I bet it would be, man. I love that hot blend. Although it, it changes every time they do it, so you never know exactly what you're going to be getting, but they all seem to be good. What was the last thing you brewed? The last thing I brewed was the chocolate uh, brown that I have going on in the back here right now. I brewed four beers last weekend. Nice. Wow. So, what kind of system do you use where you can get in four beers in a weekend? Uh, those were, I actually have a couple of different systems here. I have a, a 10 gallon system, three vessel that I'll brew on when I'm doing bigger batches. Um, uh, I just have a small eight gallon pot that I have a, I have a couple of them. So I'm just doing a small cooler and pot batches at the same time. Makes it for a hectic day because, you know, even though I try my best, to time them out to where, like, okay, I can time this out. I can pull the chiller out of this one, flame out on that one, and get right in there, maybe do a quick rinse, you know. But, no, it's flame out at the same time. <laughs> no, man, I know that. It's like, you know, suddenly you realize you have to boil for an extra 15 minutes to hit your gravity, and your whole schedule is blown. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Why don't you uh, tell people that website one more time? So you can find us at www.sjpoorchallenge.org. And thank you guys so very much for having me on today. This was a blast. Uh, it's a real pleasure, man. And, uh, you know, maybe we can do this again as the uh, competition progresses and kind of check in and see how things are going. Well, there's a good way to do that. I've been trying to get you guys to join in. I think this is a... This is a business right up both your alleys, isn't it? <laughs> Wait, you're brewing for a competition and having to ship beer? Are you kidding, man? D Denny, Denny will tell you my history with shipping. Uh, yeah, yeah. I can't tell you how many times in the last five years Drew has gone out to buy beer to send to me, and then two years later it's still sitting on his desk. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and to make so, it worse. I have two mailing places within an easy three-minute walk of my house. Yeah, right, man. I got I got to drive 30 miles to get to a place, and he can't go across the street to ship beer. So, <laughs> <laughs> All right, Stephen. Well, thank you so much, man. Enjoy the rest of your holidays. Man, is that an interesting idea for a competition or what? I'm just trying to be 
baffled by the logistics of it. I mean, it's hard enough to do a traditional competition where everything comes into one site. You know, now it's like complicated by the fact that everybody's shipping things everywhere. Yeah, exactly, man. I mean, you know, Stephen has to keep track of it. He has to set up all those different shipping centers and stuff. <laughs> Got to give the guy some props for going all out, huh? Props and possibly uh, mental health breaks. <laughs> Yeah, that too. So he was mentioning that uh, for next year or this year, I guess, uh, starting in a day. 2020. Uh, yeah, 20, for 2020. There we go. That's uh, the precise way of putting it. That the beer will have to have three hop additions and an adjunct, right? Yep, exactly. So three, three hop additions and one adjunct, not multiple. So uh, uh, not multiple. Yeah. So I think okay. it's I think it's just restricted down to one. Now, of course, these rules aren't just yet published up on their website, which is sjpoorchallenge.org, and that's poor p o r r. Um, and but from what we had in the discussions, it was going to be any style that you wanted to brew, but the recipe had to have three different hop additions. And I think they uh, I'm not entirely certain if I remember correctly if they were supposed to be like the traditional like you know bittering flavor aroma or if it was a little bit more loose than that. Uh-uh. Yeah, I, I thought it was just pretty much any three hop additions. But again, don't take our word for it. Talk to Steve. And then there was definitely one adjunct. So that had me kind of kicking around ideas of, like, if we were to take up Mr. Poor's challenge and decide to do something for our own, what would we do? And what do you got on the on the brain pan? Well, you know, um, my mind immediately went to something Belgian, which, of course, is what won last year. Uh, three hop additions, I would probably stay away from a triple and go more into the realm of a Belgian American IPA mm-hmm. get and get three hop additions in there and use sugar for an adjunct and you know if if I actually put some more thought in oh I can only use one adjunct so yeah so it would be sugar so that's probably where I'd go with it how about you yeah yeah I could see you doing something even like a Duval triple hop you know inspired type of thing yeah yeah um yep my immediate thought was actually to go either this is going to be very on brand for me, but either with a cream ale, an adjunct, yeah. adjunct to corn, and I would right. also probably play around with using a couple different varieties of hops or maybe even some American nobles in there like I have in the, in the past, because I think that would be mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Or Could you get three three hop additions in? I oh, mean, yeah. yeah, totally. Okay. Um, particularly if you're using those nobles. Um, right. And the other one that I had was, because it's all the rage nowadays, and of course I was making these about a, a decade ago. An oat pale ale. Wow. Yeah. That's not a bad idea either, man. Yeah. So I think those would be good ones. Yeah. And, and that might be uh, unique, uh, you know, something that not a lot of other people would be making. Exactly. At least not built as an oat pale ale. You know, there'd be plenty of people out there making hazy IPAs with oats in them. But right. yeah, that, that would be another style. But I would think for this one, I'd, I'd want to be a little different and use oat malt. You're always a little different. And I'm always using oat malt. <laughs> Well, there you go. Who would have thought? Okay, so I guess it's about time to uh, head to the final section and uh, get things over with, huh? Indeed. Let's get this party ended. (laughs) All right. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back, so please stick around. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Welcome back. It is time for us to wrap this thing up so we can all get on with doing other stuff. And we're going to start off with a couple questions that people have sent in to us. Drew, you got the first one there. Yeah, and so the warning is uh, if you talk to us, you might end up with your questions here on the show. And both of these questions today <laughs> yeah. come from uh, Facebook. First one comes from uh, Roderick Fredericks, who wrote into our Facebook page, says, uh, figured I would pick your brains. I'm going to do an American barley wine and was thinking about using Omega's tropical IPA yeast because why not, right? Uh, what are your thoughts on it? And so uh, looking at it, I've never used the tropical yeast or the tropical IPA yeast strain from Omega, but uh, as far as I can tell, that's their version of Sac Trois uh, from uh, White Labs, which you know also was originally called uh, Brett Trois before people figured out it wasn't a Brett. Um, I'm okay with it. I think the I think the tropical characters might get lost over time, but I think also because that yeast strain does tend to eat a lot of sugar, it'll make for something that's very high alcohol and sort of... Uh, uh, have a lot of oomph behind it to age out fairly well. Uh, Denny, if I remember correctly, it was not your first choice. No, and I I have to wonder if maybe Roderick picked it because he figured it would be able to really chew through a barley wine uh, more than thinking about the, the flavor attributes. Uh, I would have to say that that's not a flavor that I would want in my barley wine. You know, that's that's mine. It's not Roderick. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally when I'm making my, my barley wine, uh, old stoner, we call it, uh, sometimes we, uh, divide it into two batches and ferment one with 1056 and the other one with 1272 and blend them back. Or lately, I'm sure you're going to be just like shocked to discover that I've been using, uh, why use 1450 for barley wines? No. Yeah, can you imagine that? Everything from cider to barley wine. As they used to say on uh, Saturday Night Live, it's a floor cleaner. It's a dessert topping. It's a floor cleaner. It's a dessert topping. <laughs> this is true. Okay. I'm, I'm old. What can I say? Jane, you what? No, I'm not finishing that. Um, yeah. So, so, Roderick, yeah, you know, man, if that sounds good to you and you know what you're going to be getting out of it, go for it, man. There's no reason not to. It's your beer. It should work fine. You know, look, it's homebrew. The worst case is if you try it you know, and you don't like it, you'll have friends who want to drink it. <laughs> oh, man, Stupid do we minds. think alike or what? <laughs> yeah, Stupid really. minds. Yeah. Okay, the uh, next question and final question comes from Dan Little via Facebook. And Dan says, I'm going to brew a high ABV Imperial Stout, about 10.7%, and I'm debating on how to age it. 
I could keep it in second fermentation for months before packaging or keg it and then let it sit for months. I would consider bottling so I could stash some for a couple years, but I have two concerns. Number one, how to prevent bottle bombs. And number two, how could I ensure carbonation? What is the proper type and amount of yeast to add to bottles without having the number one issue? Okay. So, number one, how to prevent bottle bombs. Make sure that it's fermented out before you bottle it. If there's no fermentables left, then it doesn't make any difference how much yeast is in there. So, that is the number one thing. Number two, how could I ensure carbonation? Well, I always, when I bottle my barley wines, I add a little bit of a dry yeast, maybe, you know, a third to half a pack of uh, USO5, Nottingham, anything like that. It doesn't really matter because you're not going to be getting any kind of flavors out of it. The thing to remember is that the yeast will only re-ferment in the bottle to the extent of the fermentables there. So if you use the proper amount of priming sugar, or whatever priming agent you use, and we prefer sugar, then it really doesn't matter how much yeast you put in, because once the sugar is gone, it's going to stop. So, uh, you know, I know that uh, people had mentioned, you know, putting the bottles in the refrigerator to stop them carbonating and stuff like that. That doesn't work. Even in the fridge, the yeast is going to still keep fermenting slowly. So it's it's really pretty simple, Dan. Um, don't worry about it. Get your priming sugar right. Add a third to half a pack of yeast, and you should be good to go. And my take on that is, again, yeah, absolutely agree. Make sure your fermentation is actually at terminal so that there is the only thing that is there to ferment is the stuff that you've got. Uh, and, by the way, terminal does mean, you know, there may still be sugar left in from, you know, the regular beer, but that's fine. It's a barley wine slash imperial stout. The other thing is, uh, as I've always advocated, I've never really had a need to do extra yeast for bottle conditioning, uh, even based on how strong the beer is or how, how old the beer is in terms of how long it's been aging. Uh, mostly because I tend to believe that if you start with a big old healthy peach of viable yeast, your sins are almost always forgiven. You know, and I, I think that that's probably true. Um, I have always looked at it like, you know, I don't want to screw this up after I've been letting this beer sit and went to all the work of uh, making it. I agree. I agree. I've just, uh, I've never, I've never seen the need to stress out over it and do it. So, uh, yeah, well, that's interesting, man, because that's kind of like an opposite situation for us this time around. Yeah, I know. Usually I'm the anxious one. Yeah, that's right. But you know, uh, my, my feeling has always been, it can't hurt. It's cheap and it's easy. So what the heck go do it. I think I saw that written on a bathroom wall. <laughs> cheap and easy. That's me, Mr. Cheap and Easy. All right. I think that's enough questions today. Okay. So uh, it's time for the quick tip now, and this time around, it's yours. Yep. Uh, as you guys know, we are brewers. We play around in the brewery. We have powerful cleaners that can help us clean a lot of stuff. Well, And also, it's been the end of the holidays, which means I've made a mess in my kitchen, which means I need some powerful cleaners to make my kitchen nice and clean. Guess what? That stuff that we use in the brewery usually works pretty well on most of your stuff in the kitchen, too. A little bit of uh, PBW, a little bit of OxyClean, a little bit of Kraftmeister, you know, particularly the oxygen cleaner. And if you've got something that's really bad, the alkaline cleaner works wonders. Be careful with aluminum, but otherwise that <laughs> stuff will uh, 
eat through most of the stuff that you have problems with in your kitchen, just like it eats through most of the organic material that you're worried about when you're brewing. Yeah, you know what, man? I uh, I use the Kraftmeister a lot. If like you've had flowers in a vase for a long time and the vase is all scummy inside, uh, that stuff will just take it right off. The other one from the brewery that I use quite a bit, since I have a one-piece stainless steel countertop and kitchen sink, uh, I use a lot of Barkeeper's Friend on mm-hmm. it, which works just great. Yeah, although Barkeeper's Friend I found is always, um, it does funny things to my hands. <laughs> I guess my hands are so messed up, I never noticed. There you go. Well, I, uh, maybe I just have delicate skin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're such a delicate kind of guy. Yes, I am a delicate, a delicate, shy, retiring flower. All right. Yeah. And speaking of which, I think it's time for us to retire to something other and how we actually calm down at the end of the day. Yeah, right. Uh, you guys probably have heard us mention before how we both really love uh, British TV programs, you know, the, the how-to shows, things like, you know, the uh, the great British baking shows, stuff like that. Well, we have recently discovered two new ones, and we are both hooked on both of them. Well, importantly... New to us here in the States and new to Netflix. Yeah, right. Well, that's what I mean by new. Uh, I don't know if the shows are new or not. doesn't matter because they're new to us. The first one that I ran across is called The Repair Shop, and it takes uh, place at the uh, Weald and Downland, I believe it's called, Living History Museum somewhere in England. And basically, it's uh, an old barn that's fixed up with a bunch of artisans in there with different specialties, uh, upholstery, watchmaking, uh, painting, ceramics, stuff like that. And people bring in their family heirlooms that are in need of help, and these people restore them for them. And man, not only is it fascinating to watch these highly skilled artisans working on this stuff and bringing them back to like new condition, For me, the best part of it is at the very end when they give them back to the people and the people take them home and they, uh, you know, there was one where they they repaired an accordion Mm -hmm. and uh, this woman took the accordion home and her daughter played it for her grandmother. And, you know, I was just like breaking down in tears, man. It is so, so heartwarming. And with all the stress that is going on in the world these days, that's the kind of thing I need to wind down at the end of the day. And sometimes you can find out some really cool details. Like they had that one episode where they had some collectors, uh, Dr. Who memorabilia and they took, apart Oh the, man, really? They, they took apart the talking Daleks. Yeah. And the fact and that it, the, it, the sound was from a little plastic record inside the gizmo. What? Well, you know, and it may be before your time, but there used to be a doll called the Chatty Cathy mm-hmm. that would talk, and you would pull a string on its back, and it would talk, and it was the same thing. When you pulled that string, it would wind up a spring inside and play a little record in there. But this was like way, way, way before you had little chips that you could put in to burn the sound onto. Yeah, it was just fascinating to me to see it, so it's kind of cool. And then in the same vein, also uh, British television, so um, where the repair shop is very sort of, uh, they, they take over that barn and set up the repair shop in there periodically in order to shoot the seasons. This was a show done by Monty Don for a couple of years where he worked with gardeners around the country, uh, and it's called Big Dreams and Little Spaces. And again, it falls into that same idea as something very, very soothing. Now, unlike a lot of, say, American takeover shows where, you know, they'll come in and say, oh, yeah, look, we want to work with this family because they have, you know, uh, two disabled dogs and a, you know, adult child without a job and, you know, the family's broke and we want to give them a new house. Um, the Big Dreams Little Spaces show is very much about 
the people themselves taking these small little garden spaces that they have and converting them into their dream gardens using their own budget and their own labor, just under the direction of, of you know, Monty Don, who is a gardening presenter over in, in the UK. And just watching these people, I mean, they're working over nine months. You know, the, the show takes that long for, uh, to set up because they're, they're, they're going over in real time. And watching them get both advice on whether or not they're dreaming big enough or dreaming too small, doing something impractical, not understanding you know how plants work together, which, of course, uh, I'm sort of an idiot, too, so I don't understand all this, and learning stuff from it. Like, I was taking notes during watching the show. Uh, <laughs> um, but it's just really cool to see what people will do with these very, very small spaces. I mean, like, some of these are, like, 300 square feet or smaller, and how they yeah, turn them yeah. into, into functioning garden spaces that have some sort of unified theme, some sort of cohesion, some sort of, you know, impact and effect that, that that these people want. And it's just really nifty to see what they can do over nine months. And again, unlike the American versions of these kind of shows, the stress that they show the people going through is very mellow stress. There's, there's nobody having meltdowns and stuff like that, you know? Again, it is a relaxing, enjoyable show to watch that takes your mind off your day. So there's, there's two suggestions on Netflix for you. The Repair Shop, Big Dreams, Little Spaces. If you watch Big Dreams, Little Spaces, keep in mind that Drew is going to get me a purple linen suit like Monty wears. Yeah, well, I already have the, the crumpled look, so I'm okay there. <laughs> yeah, um, man, I think, I think we both do. And, and of course, uh, listeners, if you have any other suggestions for things in the same vein, I know, uh, Monty Don also has a series on French gardens and Italian gardens, which I'm working through my, working my way through right now. Uh, yeah, if you have any suggestions along those same lines, let us know because we could use all the soothing uh, type of content out there. Oh, definitely. All right. I think we've talked long enough. Yep. Thank all of you for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out a lot of different beer discussion forums, as well as Facebook. Uh, you can find me mainly on the AHA forum. You can run across Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit or the Slack Homebrew channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And of course, you can always leave us a voicemail or a text at 626-765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. And you can always find us at experimentalbrew.com. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.